As strange as it may sound, the Bible is one of the biggest reasons people walk away from Christianity. Uh, Isaac Asimov, a science fiction writer, says, properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. Uh, then several people were attributed to this next quote, so we're just going to go with unknown. Atheism is what happens when you read the Bible. Christianity is what happens when someone else reads it for you. And now, actually, I think more accurately, one of the biggest reasons people walk away from Christianity is not just because of the Bible or, or someone else reading it for you, but because of misunderstandings of the Bible. Uh, one of these misunderstandings uh, even happened as I was preparing for this series. I was looking at a church website with the series title, How to Read the Bible. After reading the headline on my screen, my daughter comes up to me saying, how can people not know how to read the Bible? I'm eight years old and I can read the Bible. If they can't read it, then they should go back to elementary school. And to my point, my daughter misunderstood the title. And the title was a little bit confusing because even when we're talking about understanding the Bible, we can say it in ways that could be misunderstood. And that is between people from roughly the same time period, from basically the same culture. That these misunderstandings come from many, many places. Uh, but we'll highlight just a few of them today. Uh, the first common misunderstanding about the Bible can lead adults to abandon their childhood faith because, number one, many people base their faith on the Bible. Uh, the collections of writings known as the Bible were never meant to be the basis of our faith. That The foundation of our faith is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith is Jesus and his resurrection. And if the foundation of our faith is the Bible, then that puts all the weight on a book and a usually a particular understanding of that book. And if someone can come along and sort of pull out one card, then the whole thing comes tumbling down. If a professor or an online troll or a family member can lead you to question one part of it, then your whole faith falls apart. And Christianity did not start because of a book. Christianity started because of an event. And that event is what we celebrated last Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. And that event was something that happened in the first century, which led lots of Jewish people to believe something very different from the version of faith they were handed as kids. And the reason they believed was because of a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. That Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. The Bible exists because of Christianity. And before there was the Bible, there was already the church. Now, we love the Bible as a church, and it's been quite formative for me personally, but we need to make sure that we start with Jesus. That we believe the Bible is inspired and authoritative because we believe Jesus rose from the dead, and he taught it was inspired and authoritative. And so we go with what the guy who says, who predicted his own death and resurrection, and what he says. Uh, number two, many people were taught the Bible was something it isn't. Now, not only did people teach us that the Bible was something that was never meant to be, but also most of us would love for the Bible to be something that it isn't. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we don't determine what the Bible is. Uh, some of us were taught that, and maybe even want the Bible to be a rule book, a black and white, crystal clear, that if I do these things and don't do those things, then I get to go to heaven when I die. However, for some of us, it didn't take reading much of the Bible to realize that the Bible is a lot messier than that. And it even seems as if the main point from Jesus has very little to do with even going to heaven when you die. That Jesus seemed to indicate that it's about more about God restoring and reconciling all things. And God wants us to be a part of that restoration. That eternal life starts now and not just sometime after you die go and go somewhere else. Uh, some of us were taught that the Bible is a rule book. That if you follow it, 
and its rules that you'll get to go to heaven when you die. And then some of us were taught that the Bible is an answer book. All the questions that we have in life are answered by looking in the Bible. Who should I marry? Should I marry? What kind of job should I have? Uh, to drink or not to drink? Basically, what should I do? Uh, basically, we were told, just look in the Bible because the Bible has all the answers because the Bible says fill in the blank. Only to find out when we looked for the answers, sometimes the answers were a bit ambiguous or at the very least they were contextual. Uh, the Bible is more than a rule book and it's more than an answer book. And then sometimes we want the Bible to be a science book. Uh, can the Bible just tell me everything or how everything was created? How old is the earth actually? The point being that oftentimes we bring various expectations to the Bible. And then number three, many people look to the Bible with good intentions, but still they misunderstand it. I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning wanting to determine or determined to under misunderstand somebody, particularly even the Bible. And yet many times we don't go looking for what God might actually be saying. We look for the, what the Bible, we want the Bible to say. Uh, Pastor Josh Crane says this, most of us look to the Bible to affirm things we already know rather than to learn something new. And this is a bit of a tension that we have to manage because we do need to look to the Bible at times for comfort and reminders of who we are, how God views us, and how much God loves us. We usually already know these things, but we need affirmation that they are true because the world and other people and sometimes even our own minds tell us differently. And at the same time, we also need to look to the Bible to learn new things, new perspectives, new character traits. Because if we really want to be new people and better people, then that will require learning new things. And then number four, many people don't actually read the Bible. Uh, Bill Maher, the comedian and atheist, says this, to most Christians, the Bible is like a software license. Nobody actually reads it, they just scroll to the bottom and click agree. Uh, Bob Utley, a professor of the Bible, says this, we are almost biblically illiterate and we're dogmatic in our ignorance. Uh, John Goldingay, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, says, I often think that students take the view that one of my jobs as a professor is to reassure them that the Bible does not say anything they do not already think, and to show how when it says something outrageous, it does not mean it. Which leads us to the last misunderstanding that I'll mention today, and really it's sort of the central thrust of this series. Number five, many people's understanding of the Bible didn't grow with them. And this actually, this point actually sort of goes to all aspects of our faith, but particularly our understanding of the Bible. That many people grew up with some knowledge of Bible stories, but I don't think many people know the story of the Bible, how we actually got the Bible to begin with. Uh, the backstory actually sheds quite a bit of light on the story. And as children growing up, it probably wasn't important for us to know how the Bible came to be. Uh, we would have been bored and uninterested. But as adults, this is an extraordinarily important topic, and it's actually an interesting story that if we don't know, it can be much easier to sort of discount the stories in the Bible. And so this series is for adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. But this series is also for adults who were introduced to the Bible as adults by other adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Because one of the big problems with understanding the Bible is that the way that we got our Bibles is not the way the world got the Bible. Because when you got your Bible, it was chaptered and versed, and there were footnotes, uh, maybe even study notes. It was in English and with maps and headers and subtitles, cross-references, and a concordance. Uh, maybe your first Bible came with gold leaf and your name stamped on the front. 
Uh, I wonder how many of you, if you received a Bible as a kid, received some sort of similar Bible to that. And if you received a Bible as a kid, you might have been told something similar as well. That this is God's word. It's all true and you need to live your life by it. And most of us believe that person because they seemed like to be a caring adult. And we believe most of what adults told us. And as nice as those first Bibles were, that is not how the world first got the Bible. And how the world first got the Bible will give us insight into the stories in the Bible. Now, your situation might be very different. Maybe you were not given a Bible as a child. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a tradition where you were almost encouraged to not read the Bible for yourself because that was the pastor or the priest's responsibility to tell everyone in the church what was actually in the Bible and how to understand the Bible. Whatever your experience with the Bible is, most of us developed an understanding, maybe even a respect for the Bible, not based on reading it for ourselves, because again, very few people actually read it. But many of us developed our understanding of the Bible based on what we were told about the Bible, uh, what stories we were selectively told from the Bible as kids or as students and even as adults. Even if you were not raised in a Christian tradition at all, and you have never read the Bible, your perspective and beliefs about what is the Bible is and what it's not were probably carried from your childhood perspective into adulthood. And for some of us, if the Bible says it, that settles it. However, I imagine for a significant portion of us, it is not that simple anymore because eventually someone pointed out what else the Bible says. You know, the parts that they didn't talk about in Sunday school or in church growing up. Uh, maybe some of you took enough initiative that you brought some of those parts of the Bible to your parents' attention, or maybe to your pastor or your priest's attention, because you found yourself having a difficult time reconciling what you read in the Bible with the reality and the world you were living in. You felt like being an honest person, you just couldn't look the other way, so because of what you discovered about the Bible or in the Bible, you distance yourself from the Bible, or maybe even from your faith, or maybe you're considering walking away. So regardless of how or where you were introduced to the Bible, This is a very important topic. Today we'll look at how we actually got the Bible to begin with. Uh, That story actually includes a first century physician who was not Jewish but Greek, and his name is Luke. Uh, Luke spent the time necessary to document the events of the life of Jesus. And the reason that Luke sat down to document the events of the life of Jesus was partly because he had a friend named Theophilus. Now, we don't exactly know where Theophilus was in his spiritual journey, whether he was sort of already following Jesus or still investigating what he had been told about Jesus. But Theophilus was probably like many of us. When we hear bits and pieces of a story, we read a headline, see two or three quotes, but at some point you're like, okay, but I want to know the whole story, the context around the story. Would would you put it all together for me? And Theophilus probably heard some quotes from Jesus' teaching and the gist of the story around Jesus. And likely, maybe he even met some eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and the miracles he performed. But eventually, it becomes clear to Luke that Theophilus would benefit from an orderly account of the events of the life of Jesus. We're going to start reading in Luke chapter 1. You can follow along in the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the more menu option in the bottom right corner, select events, and you can find our church. We'll also have all the notes and verses on the screen as well. So this is how Luke's document begins. Remember, Luke is a Greek man from the first century documenting the life, the works, and the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, beginning verse 1. Many people set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Uh, Basically, something happened, Luke says that was worth documenting. 
And it was so valuable to document that, that Luke tells us that he wasn't the only one trying to record the story of the events that happened in this region of the world. And this is worth noting because historically, there are not many instances where multiple written accounts exist of the same event or the same series of events. In ancient times, we have virtually no events with multiple written accounts of those events. And so in some ways, the life of Jesus sort of stands out above even generally accepted historical events. Uh, Luke continues in verse 3, Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, the title, Most Honorable Theophilus, it gives us some indication that he was an important, well-known person, or maybe even a merchant or a landowner, who also had some interest in knowing the story and the facts of Jesus' life. And so again, Luke took the time to investigate, research, and document the life of Jesus. Now, this is really important. When Luke was writing this document, Luke was not writing the Bible. Luke probably had no idea that this Bible would ever exist. Luke could not imagine that 2,000 years later, there would be a collection of writings that included his document along with what other people documented about Jesus' life. That Luke wasn't writing the Bible. Luke was writing an orderly account of Jesus' life based on eyewitnesses and the people he interviewed. And so we're going to fast forward in the story that Luke documented, and we're going to fast forward to what we have celebrated the past two weeks, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. But before we get to the resurrection part, the crucifixion is actually an incredibly important part of the story of how we got the Bible. Because before the crucifixion, Jesus claimed way too much about himself, and if he could be killed, then he was definitely not who he claimed to be. His crucifixion is actually documented by other literary works, and so not many, if any people, actually doubt that. And so here's what Luke documents right after Jesus' death on the cross. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders, those who decided to kill Jesus. Basically, he was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, through Luke's investigation and research, he gives us two reasons why Joseph of Arimathea asked to bury Jesus' body. And interestingly, neither of those reasons were because he believed Jesus was the Savior of the world. Uh, First, it seems possible that Joseph of Arimathea did this because he didn't agree with what the other Jewish leaders did to have Jesus killed. And so Joseph wanted to honor the innocent man who was killed and who Joseph seemed to have some respect for. Uh, Secondly, Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God and was at the very least skeptical that Jesus would bring it. But he seemed to want to live right with people right now, which meant properly burying this rabbi Jesus. Verse 53, Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Now, Luke gives us all this detail because he's a doctor who seems to be detail-oriented, trying to write a detailed account. Verse 55, As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. So why would they come back to anoint Jesus' body? Well, because Jesus was dead. And everyone expected Jesus to stay dead. And in this moment, there are no Jesus followers as we might think of Jesus followers. 
There is no church. There is no hope. There are just disappointed women and men who were scared that Rome or the temple would come after them too. Uh, Between Rome and the temple, the Jesus movement had sort of been crushed. That if nothing changed from this moment, there would be no the Bible. There would be no Jesus followers, no church, and no account from Luke investigating and documenting the details of Jesus, this dead rabbi. If the story ended here, there would be no story worth telling. And Luke tells us the reason that he was a Jesus follower in the first century, and that reason is because Jesus was seen alive. Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus did not end on a Roman cross. Once he came back to life, his followers came out of hiding and went to Jerusalem. They went into the streets and faced the very people who had Jesus crucified. And Luke documents all these events and the early sermons they preached. And what these Jesus followers said in the face of being arrested and some put to death. And this is one of the lines from Peter's message to some of those people in Luke, in Acts chapter 2 rather. God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses of this. He didn't say like we read about it, we heard about it. Peter says we are eyewitnesses of this. We saw this happen. Now remember one of the most powerful things that Luke admits right at the very beginning of his account that many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. That Luke says, I'm not the only one trying to document what happened among us. And if you've walked away from church or walked away from Christianity, or maybe you, if I heard your story, I'd probably agree with you and say, who, like, who could blame you? However, I think for all of us, we should wrestle with this question. Why, does this, why did so many people do this? In an ancient world where it would be unusual for people to, to research and document the same event in detail, why did so many people do this? Uh, Most people were illiterate anyhow. So why would Luke and others feel compelled to document the events that happened in Jerusalem in the first century? Now, I would suggest the answer is because something extraordinary happened. Not that something extraordinary was written about. That would come later. Something extraordinary happened that needed preserving. Because the eyewitnesses and the Jesus followers' lives, they were threatened just like Jesus' life was threatened. And so several of them sat down and dictated or wrote down their experiences with Jesus. And Peter dictated his account to a young Greek man named John Mark. And the document Mark wrote is short and action-oriented. It's almost as if that is how a fisherman's account would sound, maybe just like Peter. And Mark also traveled with Paul and he knew Luke. And Mark was one of the people Luke referenced of the many who sat down to write an account of this extraordinary event. Matthew was also one of those many that Luke referred to. Matthew documented Jesus' life as a Jewish man addressing the Jews who were looking for and waiting for a Messiah. And he would use Old Testament passages saying, the law and the prophets pointed to the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Uh, Matthew wrote his document in Hebrew because it was written to the Jews, but then not too long after that, it was translated into Greek because this was not simply a message for the Jewish people or that region of the world. This was a message for the whole world. And so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there comes John. And John decided that he also needed to document the story and his experience with Jesus. And John dictated his account when he was an old man. And so we might ask, well, why bother doing this when others have already documented their experiences with Jesus? And at the end of John's account, long before it would ever be included in the Bible, John tells us why he spent the time documenting Jesus' life in John chapter 20, verse 30. 
the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Basically, John's, John admits that this isn't the entire list of miracles that from Jesus. And they weren't performed in secret, but in front of other people. And when John says recorded in this book, he was not referring to the Bible. John was just referring to his document that he was writing or dictating. Verse 31, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. Basically, John is saying he wrote this for future generations who did not see or hear or experience Jesus on this earth because John did see, hear, and experience Jesus. He wanted future generations to know what he saw, what he experienced, and what changed his life. And when John says, so that you, he's referring to you and to me and to all of us. He writes this hoping that whoever stumbles into his account, his document, will have the opportunity to hear and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And when John says, so that you may believe, he's wanting to share evidence and support for belief in Jesus. However, some of you might be in a season of life where, if you were honest, you would say, I just don't believe it anymore. And the question that I hope you wrestle with, and I think John, the question that John wants to help you wrestle with is, what is the it that you don't believe anymore? If you walked away from faith or have considered doing that, what is the it that you don't believe anymore? Because John, not the Bible, John is telling us that the only it that really matters is, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So towards the end of the first century, John wants to convey to any people who will read his document that we can have confidence that God has done something in the world for the world. And yet, even at the end of the first century, there was still no the Bible. And yet, at the end of the first century, there were thousands and thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians, Greek Christians, Roman Christians, and Christians in different parts of the world. At the end of the first century, there were dozens, and then hundreds, and then eventually thousands of copies of these documents telling about the life and the works of Jesus. And they were meticulously copied and sort of bundled together. 200 plus years before there was the Bible, some people had a gospel and other people had two gospels and, and some people had a part of one and a part of another. Uh, these precious documents that sort of gave the first and the first, second and the third century Christians a picture of the details and the quotes from their master and their savior. And the accounts around Jesus' life documented events that happened. And as we wrap up this first message about the Bible for grown-ups, one of the obvious ways to determine how valuable something is, is by how much someone is willing to pay for it. Now, the early Jesus followers thought these accounts of Jesus' life were so valuable that they were willing to pay with their lives to preserve these documents. Because the Roman Empire was very suspicious of Christians. Uh, part of the reason they were suspicious of Christians was because of what Christians believed. And another part of it was because of what the Christians didn't believe. Christians didn't believe in the gods. Now, you could keep your household gods, your regional gods, your barbarian gods, your Greek gods, as long as you acknowledge the Roman gods, and particularly as long as you acknowledge Caesar as God. And that was a problem, though, for the Christians, because Christians refused to declare that Caesar was their Lord. Uh, they declared that Jesus was their Lord which offended Caesar and the Roman gods. And on top of that, the Romans were quite superstitious. So anytime something went bad in the empire, 
they looked for someone to blame. And when things were going well, they considered it to be a blessing of the gods. So when things went bad, they assumed the gods were disturbed for some reason. And the reason that they came back to many times over and over again for, the, for why they thought that the gods were disturbed, that must have been the growing number of Jesus followers who wouldn't recognize the Roman gods. So Tertullian, a late 2nd or early 3rd century Christian leader and author, wrote this statement that gives us a glimpse of what the Christians were up against. If the Tiber River, River floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lion. That Christians were blamed for everything that went bad in the empire because they wouldn't acknowledge the Roman gods. And these gods demonstrated their pleasure or their displeasure through the wonders of nature, through the rains and the floods, through the river, and through the result of war. And so from time to time, when things were bad in the empire, Christians got the brunt of the blame from the empire. And this culminated in the year 303 when Emperor Diocletian issued an edict resulting in the worst state-sponsored persecution of Christians. Uh, this city declared that every single house of Christian worship must be destroyed, that assembly by Christians was illegal, and that the bishops were rounded up and forced to recant and offer a sacrifice to the gods and declare that Caesar was their lord, or else they'd be punished by death. And then on top of that, all the Christian writing and literature was to be turned in and burned. And if you were caught with Christian writing, you could lose your life after you watched your wife and your daughter and your son lose their lives. And yet hundreds and hundreds of Christians risked and lost their lives not protecting the Bible. There still wasn't the Bible. These Jesus followers risked and lost their lives protecting fragments of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and copies of the letters of Paul and Peter. And the reason those valuable documents survived the 3rd and 4th century is because of these early Jesus followers' confidence that the accounts around Jesus' life documented life, events rather, that happened. That when God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, these early Jesus followers would rather give up their life than these documents. And then in 324, Constantine became emperor and reversed that edict, allowing Christian scholars to sort of bring together this extraordinary collection of valuable documents, setting the stage for the Bible. And there's much more to that story that we'll cover next Sunday. But let me pray for us right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the scriptures that we have, these documents from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the life of Jesus. Thank you that they were willing to document it, and they saw the importance of it. And then God also, thank you so much for those who came after them, who were willing to risk their life, and many of them gave their life to protect these documents about the life of Jesus. And the fact that we even have them is a miracle in and of itself. So God, thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for preserving these documents that we have. They can help us, they can help point us to you. They can help point others to you. God, would you help us to, to take an honest adult version, a, a grown-up version, look at the documents in the Bible? Would you help us to see them for what they really are, for what you want us to see them as? Would you help us our lives to be different because of that? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.